Welcome back. It's time for Customers Who Click, the e-commerce podcast for brands looking for their next growth opportunities. If you're interested in improving your conversion rates, average order values, and customer lifetime value, head over to customerswhoclick.com where you can find all our previous episodes and get in touch if you'd like to learn more. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Customers Who Click. Today, we're in for a treat. We've got Ruben DeBoer joining us. Uh, we're going to be talking about what happens after you run a test. How do you make sense of it all? And more importantly, how do you learn and grow from every test you run? Ruben's the go-to guy for this, and he's here to share his knowledge. Let's get started. Hi, Ruben. Thanks for joining me. Would you mind just give us a little introduction, a bit of your background and how you got to where you are today? First of all, thank you for having me, of course. Pleasure to be here. As you mentioned, my name is Ruben. I've been in the business of optimization and experimentation for over 14 years. Today, I am the lead consultant at, consultant at Online Dialogue, which is an experimentation-based agency in, uh, based in the Netherlands. And I'm the owner of Conversion Ideas. And with that company, I want to uh, help people learn and thrive in experimentation for affordable prices. And I live in Amsterdam, Netherlands. Awesome. Oh, very nice. Yeah, cool. So how do you get customers clicking with CRO? Do very well, very proper research. So I think research key and test, yeah. of course, do research and test, do data research, user research, scientific research, come up with perfect test ideas and then uh, test your hypothesis in an experiment, which is generally, hopefully an A-B test, but if you don't have the traffic, you can validate through user research, for instance. But it starts with doing very proper research yeah. and getting really getting to know your customer. It's not a number. You have to move down the funnel on your website in your customer journey. It's an actual customer and get to know that customer. Yeah. Absolutely. Did you, what is that research process? What does it look like? Is it, do you follow the same process for every client you work with, every every test, every hypothesis, or do you kind of pick and choose which research pieces are relevant at certain times? Yeah, and of course, as a consultant, the answer is always, it depends. So in this case, it of course depends on how many yep. hours we can spend on the study. At Online Dialogue, we go to behavioral study where we do research with multidisciplinary teams. We also do our A-B testing and experimentation with multidisciplinary teams. So generally see that our data uh, analysts, data scientists, they dig really deep into the data. What is happening on which, where in the customer journey, where are drop-offs, where are there hesitations? But that's, then we see what is happening. Psychologists, we have a team of psychologists, they really try to understand why something is happening. So they have a lot of knowledge about social psychology, but they also read a lot of scientific articles related to that product, related to that market, to come up with reasons why things are happening. And meanwhile, we have UX experts who, okay. who do UX research with polls, surveys, check with customer service. So we try to get use a lot of resources to get a very good behavioral study and really try to understand the, the potential customer as well as possible. Cool. And then, I know you mentioned polls. Did you mention surveys, surveys and interviews? Yeah. Yep detailed customer research part. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's so many sources, right? Besides Google Analytics, of course, there and besides scientific literature, there's lots of sources you can use to to learn about your users. Both surveys, feedback tool, customer service, reviews, your own reviews on competitors, usability testing. I mean, there's a lot. And that all helps to... to yeah, there's this best hypothesis. There's, there's so much out there. It's Yeah, exactly. There's so much out there. It's not... Obviously, some it's, it can be time consuming to to do. Yeah, it all. but it, it's um, well, especially if you haven't got the individuals. Yeah, yeah, no, true. We mainly do it a lot when we start with a large new client. That's when we spend a lot of time in the beginning to come up with the best possible hypothesis. So we have a head start, right? We don't just randomly start a B yeah. testing. 
course, you can do some best practices in the beginnings on lowering fruit. But through that research, we have a head start and we are more successful in finding those winners and to optimize for our users. And after that, we still tend to do research every now and then, but A-B testing is also research. A-B testing is also a way of learning about what works and what doesn't work and learning about behavior needs and motivations from your website visitors. Uh, absolutely, yeah. It's, it's a similar approach, really. It's find out what some key focus areas are for our clients, and then we start targeting those with the test directly. What happens with, once you're finished with the test? Right, what's Good question. How, what would you recommend brands do next? Well, my, my first question would be, what is a finished test? For me, it, a yep. test is, it can be finished once you hit the stop button in your testing tool. Maybe some call it finished after they did their analysis of the results and then say it's a winner or loss prevented experiment or inconclusive. Some will say after drawing the learnings, come up with follow-up experiments. I mean, it's all of that, but it's also documenting the results and sharing results that are in a way that's useful for your colleagues. Because there's no sense if the CRO specialist yep. keeps all that knowledge to himself. Uh, it makes much more sense to to build a knowledge database with experiments and share the, the insights that are useful for your colleagues. And who are we talking about when you say colleagues here? Uh, it, it, it could be anyone, right? If you can help a key stakeholder with your insights to achieve her goals, that's perfect because the key stakeholders are vital if you if you want to have experimentation spread throughout your organization but also on a smaller scale your team members right your direct colleagues if you can help them with your experiments and your insights from research and you start thriving as a team that already is a big win and creates a nice uh, thriving environment around you giving you more freedom and more support for your work yeah absolutely so it's like company-wide support isn't it eventually yes in some companies that's a very large goal and very hard for one CRO specialist but, to do. But, you know, I do see when one CRO specialist gets to a, is moved to a product team and there has to help the team experiment, that really helps to align with them and really share the insights. To- yeah. So I think, I mean, I, I know what I see and definitely when brands try CRO themselves, but also some agencies as well, a test is finished once they hit their sample size requirement. Yeah. They uh, check for statistical significance, power of the test, and all that sort of stuff. And then they go, cool, we're done. Three and a half percent improvement in conversion rate. Implement it. Move on. Yeah. And sometimes even templates with their A-B test results, where it says like the setup of the experiment, the screenshots, then the most important KPIs. And then you get to the learning of the experiment and they start summarizing the results. And that makes sense. I mean, a lot of people do it. There's no nothing wrong with that. But if you dig a little deeper, like what do these results actually say? That's when you get to the learnings. Well, it's a report, isn't it? Yeah. And a report tells you what happened, not why it yeah. happened. And that's the thing we care about, especially with experimentation, because the whole point is, you know, why are people acting like this on your website? How can we influence that behavior? So if you just say, cool, adding a sticky call to action, change, improve conversion rate by 3%, done. Yeah, so what? Exactly. Yeah. What does that mean? So how do you learn from these tests? Once I need, I'm going to say the word finished again, but let's say you've you've hit the requirements, you've decided, right, we don't need to be running this A-B test anymore. Whether it's positive or negative, what are the next steps for you? Stopping the test in the testing tool. And after that, for us, it's generally the, the analyst who starts deep diving into the data. At Online Dialog, we have as much as possible automated. So the basic KPIs, 
creating a nice template report. That's all being automated. But of course, you want those extra insights besides the main KPIs to learn what is happening because of what we changed in the variance. So a data analyst will, will start deep diving and then becomes a game between the data analyst and the psychologist because the psychologist might ask for additional information to, to understand what is really happening. So really say like results are not learnings. We look at what does do the results, what do they say, what, what was happening, why is it happening? Now, if a test was it the winner, was the hypothesis off or was the execution off? And we also look at uh, our documentation and, and try to find like what insights do we get when combining it with other results and outcomes of experiments? Mm-hmm. Does it add to the insights we have? Is it consistent with previous findings or did we learn something new? And then what exactly did we learn and how should we follow up on that? So again, the documentation is key because that's when you combine learnings. That's when you start le- really learning and have a structure to your row program. Yeah, I think this is the really important piece, isn't it? It's if you did the research and you came up with the hypotheses, it means that you ran that test for a reason. Yeah, right. You came up with you came up yep. with that reason. If that test has a negative uh, result, you should be looking at and asking yep. why. Yeah, like you said, was our hypothesis wrong or was the execution yep. wrong? And what can we do to change this? Do we need to go back and do a bit more research? Or is it just, actually, maybe we should have done that like this instead when we put it on the website and you try something else. But yeah, it's that is the important thing. And I like that idea of cross-checking it with uh, other tests you run, I guess, in a similar space. And say, well, I guess if you're testing social proof, for example, if you've run previous tests and adding product reviews and doing various tests with product reviews has been successful... And then you run a, a product review test and it has a negative impact or, I don't know, it increases your AOV instead of conversion rate as yep. expected. You look back and you say, well, okay, this is something different. Why did this version of this test give us a different result, even if it's positive? Exactly. And I think that's where, well, it's where I see some of the biggest mistakes, really. It's uh, whether it's positive or negative, people just stop. Yes. Yes, but it's that, that I guess a lot of people start with converse rate optimization because they're curious. They're curious to see if the hypothesis works. We get to get to work data-driven and, and see if our ideas work or don't. And we have to use that curiosity as well when it comes to learning. It's like, why did it happen? Why did we see this happening in the data? Why do we see these uh, results? And really dig deeper and try to understand the, the customer's needs and, and motivators and, and behavior to, to improve the experience for them in the next experiments. And ex- exactly like you said, it's uh, yeah. it's how we we document everything in Airtable, we automize as much as possible, but we do indeed look at like what combination of psychological strategy and page work best, uh, what tactics are work best on what page. And this could be in a checkout, very different from the landing page, of course. But by documenting everything correctly, tagging it correctly, that's when you have those overarching learnings. And even with you, when you have an experimentation program with thousands of experiments uh, a year, you still get those. You can still get to see when you tag well what works well and what step in the customer journey. Yeah, obviously another really important piece in that is it, it's not just the what did this test do. It's that being able to look at things after six months, looking at everything you've done and saying, okay, cool. Well, if we run this psychological tactic on PDPs, it works well, but it doesn't work well on the cart exactly. page. And, and of course, you also have you know, a single A-B test can be prone to errors. Maybe it was a winner for a different reason that's stated in your hypothesis. 
maybe you added social proof and the social proof didn't cost the winner, but the fact that you added it somewhere and moved another piece of content more to the bottom of the page, which was a conversion killer, maybe that was the reason why the test won. Or you could have false positives, for instance, where in the test period it states that the test was a winner, the variant was a winner, but in reality, there's no difference. And by looking, so a single A-B test yeah. is prone to errors, but by looking at a group of A-B tests, well-documented, called a meta-analysis, that's when you start to see real patterns and most trustworthy patterns. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I remember running a test a couple of years ago now for a client where they, they had a, just a footwear retailer. They had an in-stock tag on their PDP right in the middle of the page, in the middle of the like price description and, and call to action. And I just thought, well, this is pointless. Why do we need an in-stock tag? Let's tell people if it's out of stock and let's try and capture email address but do we really need an in-stock tag? So my hypothesis at the time was, yeah, do people care about it? If we remove it, all, all I was really looking for was no negative result. Didn't care if it stayed flat. I wasn't looking to improve conversion rate or anything. I just wanted to make sure it, that wouldn't hurt, harm conversion rate. And it did have a quite positive impact at conversion rate. And actually what, what we then noticed happened was it had pulled the call to action above the fold. So people could see they they got a description of the product, they got the images, they got their size selection and their and the add to cart all in that space. And so we just kind of sped up that that process for customers really. So that yeah, it's where that had that unintended impact, right? Removing in stock doesn't improve your conversion rates. The actual thing was bringing the call to action above yeah, the fold. Perfect example. There's a perfect example of like really trying to understand what happens. You see the data, but why does it happen like that? And that, that's an excellent example. Yeah. And I mean, there's this, you've got to do it even with your research, I suppose, as well. But before you even get to the testing stage, you've got to really understand what people are doing, why they're doing it. When you gather feedback from people, really understand what they mean by their feedback. Yeah. I mean, it's why I really dislike multi-choice surveys that have price <laughs> as one of the reasons why people didn't yeah. buy because it's always the number one option and it's never it's very rarely price yeah. is actually the problem yeah. no very very true and of course with user research always test because there can be a big difference between what people say they do and what they actually do yeah i mean it's yeah, again it's, it's another reason to just test right otherwise you could you could do the research and say, well, everyone's telling us we need to do this. You do it and it flops. Yeah. I, I interviewed, so what is his name? Tyler Sullivan. I think that's his name. Probably like a hundred episodes ago now. He runs a, he runs a golf brand. And he was saying, I think it was him who was saying this. They asked people which golf club they would like next. They released that golf club and it flopped. Yeah. Right, because they just did it based on what people tell them. And yeah, there's the, if you stick a couple of options in front of people and say, which of these would you like, they're going to select yeah. one. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Even though they might be, they might actually be thinking, I'm probably not going to buy this, but that yeah. looks cool. That would be an interesting yeah, product. People don't know that. So also in, in user tests, so skip such questions because people simply don't know. I think it's also a quote from, I think, Henry Ford when he said, like, yeah, if I would have asked people what they wanted, they would have said, I want a faster horse, where in fact they wanted a car. Yes. Yeah. I've heard that the quote is not really? true <laughs> um, and that he didn't actually say it, but it's a good quote and it's attributed to him and that makes sense because he's quite a visionary, wasn't he? 
I do like the quote. Yeah, so. the one who came up with that and has a good quote. It's not Henry Ford. I suppose it's, it might be one of those cases where so, someone thought of it and went, this is such a good quote, but if I quote myself do, saying this, no one's going to care. So I'm going to quote someone really famous what? and and kind of thrive off See that. People believe it. It's a good experience. Yeah. Can you talk us through the documentation stuff a little bit? I know it's probably, for some, not the most exciting piece of of testing. People want to yeah. see the results and then go, cool, yeah. we've got an increase. Let's move on. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. What, yeah. What are some of the important things to document? As much as possible and as consistent as possible. Like you said, I see it often that okay. it's not the most favorite part of most zero specialists. And I guess that's because we just love testing and we want to move fast and set up the next experiment or next study as, as soon as possible. Um, but when you, and, and documentation also has on short term, it doesn't have as big of a benefit as, 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 you do, as you have on the long term when you get all those insights and goals. But I can definitely recommend to document yeah. because when you have a lot of experiments and then you have to document everything because you lost track, that's a lot of work. But I would, would basically try to make it easy, but stay consistent and make it complete with the information you need, right? So don't make it like a too big of a hassle. Don't add a lot of information you probably won't need, but add what is important and document uh, everything. Document your research, document your, your test ideas, doc- and again, try to automate as much as possible. Like there's meta-analysis, prioritization, you can automate. Yeah, uh, I think it's really important. And yeah, particularly the, like, don't overdo it. I think for, for two reasons. Firstly, it becomes uh, a, a bit of a chore. And something people don't want to do. And if people don't want to do it, they're more likely to not do it or not do it properly. And I think secondly, it's like some of these KPI dashboards I'm I'm sure you've seen before as well, where there's about 50 stats being tracked on a weekly basis. And it's just being tracked for the sake of tracking it in a dashboard. No one's actually looking at it. And even if people do, half the numbers, they're just not going to care about. So I think there's, yeah, it's pick those key metrics and those key learnings and things. Don't worry about noting down every single little statistic. No, there will be too much work. And of course, there's a trade-off. And you want to yeah. document everything well to get those learnings, get those insights, get the meta-analysis. But at one point, you want to set up a new experiment because eventually you're probably one of your goals is to run as many experiments, have as many learnings as, and winners as possible. So there's a trade-off somewhere. But yeah, do document because learning is so important. It's also, it's for a structured process, it's also key to have a solid documentation because then you have a solid structured process that is clear, it's consistent, uh, and the same every time. It also helps with accountability, of course. Who is responsible for what step? It's ideal for planning. But also if you use a tool like, like Airtable, you can have automated dashboards and you can have dashboards relevant for your team, relevant for your stakeholders. Again, make it as easy as possible, automate as much as possible and continuously learn by building a knowledge database. Yeah. And I guess another part of it is probably if you're getting started with this, you don't have to build out this huge Airtable Mm -hmm. dashboard with dozens of tabs and everything. Just start doing something. Like you say, stay consistent. And find out what you really need, stay consistent. Exactly. And just over time, Yeah, exactly. I mean, I have a free uh, course uh, on building up a setting of an Airtable base for CRO process. And that just helps to understand the basics of Airtable. And it sets up a basic process, which you can then use and and tweak to your needs. But it helps you just to quickly 
get those basics right. And once you start using it, I'm sure you'll do some adjustments to, to the dashboard uh, I show in the course, but you have a basis and you can work from there. And that really helps kickstart this documentation process because for me, documentation, it really makes my life as a zero manager, lead consultant, a lot easier. I mean, I started when I looked 10 years ago, I think 10 years ago, I was working in in Excel to do my documentation. It was such a mess and such a, yeah, such a pay. Yeah. <laughs> then switched to Effective Experiments by Manuel da Costa, great guy, a great tool, already made my life a lot easier. And now we have everything in Airtable and keep optimizing that base as well to get more insights, more automations done. Yeah. Yeah. I've done the course. It was, yeah, it was fantastic to be honest. I, it's one of these things where I hadn't used their table before, but I was looking for a, a proper platform to document in because yeah, I was basically using Google Sheets, yeah. noting down a few stats, making some notes on research and observations and things. I was like, it's just messy. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't, and, and, you know, when you do, doesn't look good. It's, when you do one test a month, sure, it, it could definitely work. Once you start speeding up, then yeah. yeah, you'll start hating it a lot. Yeah, and you'd have to build out a fairly complex Google Sheet yourself in order to get some of the learnings you've been talking about. Like once you run 20 tests on your PDP that are around social yeah. proof, getting those, being able to just quickly check for that and say, well, these are the insights we generally get from from that type of test. Whereas in the Google Sheet, yeah, no, yeah, it's a bit yeah, nightmare yeah. trying to match all that up. It takes you a long time to get those insights out. Yeah. What about, I guess, pr- prioritization of tests? Like, how do you recommend brands work out what to test next? Yeah. So this, again, really ties into the documentation, right? When you start with a zero program and, and you're just starting off, then like a model like Pi or Ice works nice. Pi, potential importance, ease. Give it a score from one to 10. You take the average or the sum and, and you prioritize that. That's perfect for the for the start. It's very easy. But it's all subjective. Like when you guess a test or guess an A-B test, you guess five, you, you probably have at least uh, one wrong. So how do you know the potential? How do you know the impact? It's, it's just guessing. What is it then? A lot of people transition into a PXL-like framework. I've used it for many years. It's already more fact-based. It asks questions like, is the change above the fault? Yes or no. Is it based on user research? Is it based on data research? There are a couple of questions, just fact-based, where you add a one or a zero. And you get a total score, and that's prioritization. It's much more fact-based, so I like that a lot yeah. better. There's just one downside, and that's that uh, we do everything evidence-based. We do everything data-based. And a question such as, is this based on user yeah. research, and give it a, a higher score if an idea is based on user research, You have, if you have good documentation, you know if that will result in, a, in more win rates, and a higher win rate, and higher impact. But maybe your UX researcher is really bad at your X research or you have an emotionally high product or service that you X research just doesn't work with the saying and a doing thing. Um, and that still surprises me today that, that we still tend to use search frameworks, even in high velocity programs, while we have the data on what works on our own website. So what we do is evidence-based periodization, which can again also be automated. We simply look what works on what page. So for instance, if we see in our experiment results that an experiment related to ability works very well in the checkout, but motivation and checkout do not work at all, all the ideas based on ability on the checkout should have a higher prioritization score. Whereas all the ideas on motivation and checkout should have a low prioritization score. 
that's Evernote's best prioritization. And if you run sufficient tests, you have sufficient data in your documentation, you can use this to prioritize your experiments. Evidence based on completed experiments. Yeah, so would you suggest starting out with something like PXR? Yeah. And then once you've got once you've run a few tests and you've enough I guess enough tests for you to be statistically sure that that you've got confidence in that. But yeah, I think that's a it's a really good way of looking at it because you, like you say, a huge amount of tests that we run are based on user research because it's part of our yeah. process. And therefore, it's, it's very frequently a one in yeah. that. There's a few others that that mix it up. But I was just reminded, we used to, back in a previous job, and just related to, I think it was just generally related to ideas for the business. It was a startup. What we did was we scored them using the Fibonacci mm, model yes. scoring system. So what is it? One, two, three, five. I think so. Eight, yeah. 13, 21. And then we stopped at 21. Don't need to go higher than that. I might not get this 100% right because I haven't done it for about six years, but we always had three people. I think it was three. Yeah, three people rate the project for how impactful we thought it would be and use that scoring model. And the reason is, if, if you're using the scale of, of like if one to 10, right, what's really dif- the difference between seven and eight? Well, six and yeah. seven, like you don't really know. Whereas... There's quite a significant difference between 8 and yep. 13, 13 and 21. 21, you're saying this is going to be ridiculously good for us. 13, you're like, this should hit pretty well. And 8 is, this might yep. do okay. But it's obviously, it's not even half of the top yep. score. And then we had, I can't remember exactly how this worked. If two people were one score apart from each other. So let's say I'd gone 5 and you'd gone 13. Those two people have to justify their scores and ideally one person should move up or down yeah. so you should so one of those people should move up to eight either i should move up to eight or you should be down to eight i think and that basically gives you it, it, it gives you the idea of that score because you've had a discussion and you've both said yeah, yeah do you know what actually it does make more sense for this to be an eight yeah. um, it really make a team effort. or whatever and then you use an average of the three. Oh, interesting it, it makes yeah. a real team effort it's it's it makes it a real team effort it does add a bit of workload to it. Obviously, three people picking a score, you can do that in Airtable, right? Person one, person two, person three, choose your score. And I'm sure you could automate whether or not there needs to be a discussion Mm -hmm. about one. And then I I guess on a a weekly stand-up or whatever, you you just pull up all the ideas that have been flagged and the two people have scored them or the three people have scored them justify justify their their scores because you'd have to have that conversation but you know having a conversation about ideas is good anyway isn't it yeah um, of course i don't i mean it does the yeah. some extra work but i really it's, of course there's all these biases when it comes yeah. to team discussions and the one with the biggest mouth generally wins a discussion yeah. it brings in some bias but i can see how it makes it makes it a team effort interesting but it's yeah it's just it, it, i think even it uh, it should mitigate even having that person with the, the biggest mouth yeah. or, the, or the loudest yeah. voice. Should mitigate it a yeah. bit because of the dis- difference between scores. Yeah. Yes. As, as opposed to if I vote six and you vote seven, it's almost like if, if you were louder than me in the room, it's easy for me to just say, yeah, do you know what? Fine, it's seven. Yeah. Right. And we don't get anywhere with that. Whereas having a proper discussion around it, you can, you also kind of brainstorm the idea. Yeah, exactly. You? Exactly. Right. It's an opportunity to actually dig into that idea before it moves any yeah, further yeah. 
And I, and I think what we also have to, we can go one step deeper on, on this topic. I think this is an interesting uh, way of prioritizing. I like the evidence-based way. But then again, of course, we also have the data because we do everything data-driven, right? We also have the data if a higher prioritization score led to a higher win rate and higher impact on your main KPIs, right? We have that. If you document it right, like hey, when this idea goes to experiment, it has a prioritization score of 13. Uh, and when this goes to experiment, it's 21. And gather all the 21s and 13s, and is 21 indeed better than a 13? Maybe the, the ideas yeah. for 13 have a higher win rate and a higher impact on the main KPIs. That means your periodization model needs to be optimized. And that yeah. again, we have that data somewhere, if you document well. Yeah, if yeah. you document well. But yeah, it's another way of in- improving the process for everyone, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, if you realize your scoring model is not yeah. working, then... Let's check the data, what is working? You, you've got the data there to actually improve your own processes. Yeah, of course, when you have lots and lots of experiments for then you can probably have an algorithm or AI run over it. But until that time, when you document well, you have the data. And when you see that your prioritization model is off, change the weight of some of the factors you use, for instance. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure once you've got enough data, you can review that and work out. You can probably work out where you've got the scoring wrong as well. Minded fair amount of data for it, a decent number of tests, but exactly. yeah, you should be able to. Like that, we can optimize the optimization model uh, process, right? Awesome. Cool. Uh, so just before we finish up, is there anyone in the in the e-commerce world you'd want to sit down for lunch with and, and have a chat? With a lot of people. And, I, and I, I, I honestly think that we have a wonderful line of work because um, a lot of people are very open to, to have a lunch, right? I speak to a lot of people every week. I meet people, have lunch or beer with people on conferences and have wonderful conversations. So you could always... Well, when listeners think of this question themselves, yeah, always reach out. I mean, people are really friendly and open. For me, yeah, because of course I sent this question before the, the episode already. I had a good thing because I would speak, like I said, I speak to a lot of people in e-commerce uh, world. But I would really love to sit one day with uh, James Clear. He's the writer of the book Atomic Habits. I think that's a fantastic, right. it's a fantastic Actually. book, and I think it's very important for us as well, for several reasons. First of all, of course, when you have a product. And you want to create some sort of habit for people to use your product, keep using it. Same as also described in the book Hooked by Nir Eyal. But I like Atomic Habits because it's also we can also use that if your job or if your goal is to have your team experiment or contribute to experimentation, try to make it a habit for them so it becomes an automated process for them. And I really like to ask him, like James Clear, like what would you do? How would you create habits with your colleagues? to contribute to experimentation. That would be a fascinating uh, question. And I think that will take longer than one lunch. Yeah, it might take a while because it, it pretty much goes through the entire yeah. book, right? <laughs> Just go, how do we make it appealing? How do we make the alternative unappealing? And all that. Yeah, it's great. It's a great book. I'm not quite finished with it yet. But yeah, it's, it's definitely one that I know that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read through and then I'm going to have to go back into each chapter and just pick out the key points and make notes. But just for now, I'm reading it straight through. Yeah. It's a nice uh, book to read. It's easy yeah. to read and it's definitely worth to read twice or yeah. uh, if you need to go through your notes. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. And and just finally, if you've got one final kind of golden nugget, nugget of, uh, of CRO advice. I guess it's related to a lot of things we, we spoke about. I truly believe that if you, maybe it's not just related to CRO, but I believe that if you have a CRO mindset, an optimization mindset, 
you can apply it to all other areas in life, not just on your website and digital products, not just on your CRO process, optimizing CRO process, not just on evidence-based periodization, use data to optimize that, but generally in life, right? Uh, try to optimize your personal life, your happiness, your health, fun in life. You can use this mindset is so precious, is will to be willing to be curious, to be data-driven, to keep optimizing. I love to use it in my personal life as well, uh, with sports, with food, with meditation. Of course, it doesn't mean I never drink a beer because we need to optimize for fun as well, but definitely use it more than just on your digital products and digital and, and your website, right? Use it everywhere and have fun. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't document it that much on my personal life, but yeah, I definitely use it for tennis, for the gym, for cooking. Yep. Even probably the biggest one recently has been my morning routine yep. and just try and work that out. Like, because I have to walk the dog yep. Yep. first. So then it's what order of things do I do? What can I get in? Do I go to the gym? That that didn't work. I'm not an early gym person. Um, I worked a lot on it as well. But yeah, no, that was well, only <laughs> yeah. thing I worked a lot on it to optimize um, it. And I do a lot of stuff in the morning uh, and have sufficient energy and happiness uh, throughout the day. And it really worked for me as well to optimize. Yeah. And then, yeah, absolutely. Cool. Well, thank you so much. If anyone wants to, to reach out and, and find out more from you, what's the best way of doing that? Yeah, feel free to connect with me on uh, LinkedIn. I would actually uh, encourage you to connect with me on LinkedIn. Love to hear your stories. Uh, if you have any questions, yeah, feel free to ask. Always fun. So yeah, feel free to reach out there. And if awesome. you them or the same event, come say hi and let's have a coffee. All right. Thanks so much, Thank Ruben. You. Fantastic conversation, Ruben, there. Today, we dive deep into understanding tests and most importantly, how to learn from them. Remember, every test is a stepping stone to doing better and reaching your goals. And regardless of the result of the test, there is something to learn from it. If you're curious to hear more from Ruben and his insights, connect with him on LinkedIn. Any other questions, feedback or guests requests, uh, please email me at will at customersyclick.com or DM me on LinkedIn. Next up, we've got Simon Girardin joining us. We're going to be talking through CRO processes and why they're so important. Stay tuned for more insights in the next episode. And until then, keep those customers clicking. Mm-hmm.